Hello and welcome to The Recovery Report, a show where I talk about my previous experiences with mental illness and my recovery from mental illness in the hopes of helping you to overcome your mental illness, potentially see reasons as to why you have come to a point of suffering from mental illness. This is episode one and the episode is called Oppression and Depression. And today we're going to talk about various different uh, topics that are included in that. We're going to talk about the kind of person that oppression narratives seek. We're going to talk about my experience with oppression narratives. Specifically, we're going to talk about communism. We're going to talk about other oppressive narratives, go through sort of a list of them and a brief description of what they are and how they work. We're going to talk about the danger of oppressive narratives. And we're going to talk about sort of my recovery from oppressive narrative, carrying those oppressive and victimhood narratives. We're going to talk about how I feel towards them now and kind of what my life has been like since abandoning such oppressive narratives. Okay, so in order to talk about the kind of people that oppressive narratives attract, I'm going to talk about my childhood quite briefly. I lived in a household that was quite hostile. I was part of that hostility and the victim of the hostility. Uh, Me and my mother didn't have a particularly good relationship. At some point, I think when I was sort of 11 or 12 years old, me and my mother started to play a game that was something to the effect of, let's see who can destroy each other's lives first and worst. And what happened was that we would effectively do things to destroy each other. There was a lot of neglect going on at home. I know that myself and one of my siblings has an agreement that both of us suffered neglect to varying degrees at certain points in our childhood. And so what this effectively left me with was that I really had no confidence. I felt like I was was different. I felt that that there was something wrong with me. I didn't really understand what was going on at home at that point, particularly up until my sort of mid-twenties. I didn't really understand how different my upbringing was and what effect that that had had on me. I sort of thought that everyone had a similar childhood to what I experienced and Everybody had the same feelings that I had, and those feelings were no self-worth, no self-confidence, no belief in myself or my abilities, and really a kind of warped sense of the world. My sense of the world wasn't really based in reality. It was based on kind of the terrible things that were done to me. And those terrible things that were done to me were assumed to be kind of the normal experiences and processes of life. 
And oppressive narratives, they attract people with a different upbringing. They attract those sort of insecure, uncertain and different people. Uh, people who really feel like they can't relate to, let's say, normal members of society. Kind of feel like an outcast. Kind of feel like you see things that other people don't really see. And then when I was uh, 20, I went off to college. Now, I didn't go to college through the normal system of going to college. You finish school when you're 16, you go on to do college when you're 16 until, let's say, 18. And then perhaps if you've done A-levels, you go on to university. I didn't go through that process. I spent sort of up until I was 17, uh, I was unemployed. And then when I was 17... I worked in different factories and didn't really have any ambition for my life at all until I realised that sort of working in a factory wasn't really for me and so I decided to explore going to college and trying to sort of make something better for myself. And so I went off to college and I studied on a course called an Access to Higher Education course which is effectively similar to doing A-levels, except that you do the qualification in a year. On my course, it was a social science course. So I studied psychology and sociology and English literature, along with some other subjects for GCSE level. And when I went to college, there was a big push towards Marxism. Now, for those people who don't know what Marxism is, Marxism is an ideology, a social theory, based upon the writings of a man called Karl Marx, who was a communist. He wrote the Communist Manifesto, and he also wrote Das Kapital, which is a two-volume book, which is a criticism of capitalism, as he saw it in the 1800s. So this was... Um, heavily pushed in college by specifically by the sociology teacher by one of the English teachers and um, somewhat by the, psycho uh, the psychology teacher and what Marxism is is basically it's the idea that capitalism is a system of oppression and that the world would be or society would be better if it was replaced with communism and because that was heavily pushed and I was kind of vulnerable to those ideas because of my upbringing, I took on Marxism and communism very heavily. I believed in that stuff fervently, I would say. So that's the kind of person that oppression narratives kind of attract. And I'm going to go through briefly what my oppression narrative was how it came about and kind of the outcome of that within the individuals that believe it. Okay. So what is communism? Communism is when the means of creating capital or wealth are distributed, shared equally amongst all members of society. Okay. So just to backtrack briefly, what this means is 
is that because the people who own the means of creating capital in, in a capitalist society, they effectively own a lot of the wealth. The communist idea is that, well, if everybody owns the means of creating capital, i.e. everybody owns business, all businesses and everybody owns all institutions, then everyone will get an equal share of the profit of those businesses and institutions. So that's the theoretical definition of communism. However, we know in practice that that is never ever been the case okay what happens in practice is that as Karl Marx called for he called for what what he called a dictatorship of the povertus the proletarian is the word that he used and what this effectively means is that the poor people overtake the society start a dictatorship in order to, let's say, prepare society for what true communism really is. And then they hand power back to the individuals. However, this never happens in communist societies. You have an overthrow of the, the government, the people in power, and then a dictatorship is formed under the name of communism and that dictatorship remains. And the reason that that dictatorship remains for the most part is because communism is a collectivist idea and collectivism is basically the idea that the group is more important than the, the individual. And so when it comes to handing um, power back to the individuals, that's impossible in a collectivist society because it goes against everything that collectivism is. Okay. So that's a very brief and basic description of what communism is. And communism was a popular idea before Marx came along. But Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who was his kind of, let's say, partner in crime they were the brightest of the communists okay and so they were tasked with writing the communist manifesto Friedrich Engels wrote a document which he asked Marx to effectively edit Friedrich Engels wrote it in question and answer form he asked Marx to edit it so that it wasn't in question and answer form and the version that we have today is in question and answer form. So it's really, it's not obvious what Marx contributed to the Communist Manifesto at all. And perhaps we'll go into that a bit later. But Marx, um, he looked at the French Revolution, the Second French Revolution, and he saw capitalism as a replacement of feudalism. Feudalism is you have lords of the land and the serfs who was sort of the, the lower class would be tasked to work four days on their own land and then two days on the lord's land 
for free. And Karl Marx looked at feudalism and he looked at capitalism and didn't really see any big difference there. The only difference that Karl Marx saw was that now the previous serfs could choose which lord they worked for. And that was really the only difference that he saw between capitalism and feudalism. And so he thought that um, the oppressive relationship between the lords and the serfs was still there, uh, but it was under a new name and that that, that new name was an oppression of the proletariat by the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie was the rich and the proletariat was the poor. He thought that the bourgeoisie exploited the proletariat uh, for their labour and paid them wages just high enough that the proletariat wouldn't die and that they could continue to work. That's the sort of main idea behind Marxism, this idea of exploitation and oppression from the bourgeoisie onto the proletariat. And what this does though, is that it creates this culture of oppression, okay? People who believe this, believe that they're oppressed, okay? And we're gonna get into a bit later on about why that's such a problem, okay? But first we're gonna go through some oppressive narratives that are very prevalent and present today, okay? So the first one that I want to touch on is Black Lives Matter and the movement of uh, white privilege. So the idea of Black Lives Matter, the, the idea that they push most, let's say harshly, is the idea that black people are oppressed by white people, okay? Particularly the idea that policemen who effectively work on behalf of white people oppressing black people, that they hunt down black people to criminalize them. And what they do to substantiate this idea is that they point to statistics that show that Overwhelmingly, black people are have more interactions with the police, particularly violent interactions with the police. But we're going to talk about a few statistics to try to debunk this. Okay. So in the UK and in America, black people disproportionately commit violent crimes. Okay. Now what this means is is that if you were to take the statistics of white people committing violent crimes and compare them to a population, you would get a statistic. And you would get a statistic that's similar in Asian people and other ethnicities, except for black people. Black people commit more violent crime than you would expect based on those statistics. So what that means is that they are overrepresented in the statistics. Black Lives Matter point to the idea that, well, there's more policemen or more police officers in black communities. And so that is why 
there's a disproportionate amount of black people who commit violent crime compared to other races. And if that was the end of the story, then you could somewhat accept that. That if the police are more present in black communities, they would have more opportunity to catch black people committing violent crimes. And therefore, you would expect to see more black violent crime in the statistics. However, when you look at who the victim of these violent crimes are in the black communities, you can gain an understanding as to why police presence is higher in those communities than other communities. And the overwhelming victim of black violent crime is other black people. And so you can, you can understand why police presence is higher in black communities. It is not to oppress or criminalise on black people. It's actually to protect innocent black people from black people who want to commit violent crime. Okay. Also, if you go onto the Black Lives Matter website and if you listen to Black Lives Matter leaders talk, you understand that these people really don't care too much about black people. That their their goal is communism. They are trained Marxists. Okay. So another oppressive narrative is fourth wave feminism, the idea that men oppress women and that we live in a male-dominated patriarchy. And one of the, the big sort of statistics that they use to justify that belief is that men get paid more than women. Okay. And there are two counter arguments to this. Okay. The research that they point to that states that men earn more than women didn't state that men earn more than women on an hourly rate. It actually was talking about lifetime average earnings. Okay. So what does this mean, lifetime average earnings? What it, what it means is that let's say that over the course of a lifetime, a man will make, let's say, a million pounds, just for example. Women would make, let's say, £850,000. Okay. Now, because we're looking over the course of a lifetime, it's quite easy to point out examples where women would lose money. Women get pregnant. So they have time off to have their children. Women oftentimes take time, time off to look after their children when they're sick. Because women have a time out to look after their children, to have children, they miss opportunities for promotion that a man who's there um, more regularly doesn't lose out on. They have the opportunity to compete for those promotions, etc, etc, etc. You can come up with lots of different reasons why women wouldn't make as much money as men over the course of their lifetime. Okay. 
The second argument would be that if women made less on average than men, let's say hourly, as they like to represent when they speak of such things, there would be no men in the workforce. Okay, because capitalism is about the drive for profit. If you could get as much productivity out of a woman as a man and pay them less, you would never hire a man. Okay. So now I'm going to talk about the danger of an oppressed narrative. Okay. And I'm going to talk about myself as well, sort of interlinked with this. When I believed that I was oppressed, I believed that all of the issues of my life were because of the oppression. One phrase that I like to say quite often is that an ant needs a boot to feel crushed. Whereas a human only needs to imagine the boot in order to feel crushed. Okay. So because I was oppressed, I believe that all of the issues in my life were due to the oppression. And that I was perfect in every single way. That there was nothing wrong with me. And if only, I, if only people would stop oppressing me, I would be okay. That I would have everything that I ever wanted. Because that's where the idea of oppression leads you. It leads you to believe, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, that society oppresses me, okay, and that because society oppresses me, I don't have the opportunities to make something out of myself, okay, that I have all of the abilities available to me to make something out of myself. But if I wasn't oppressed, I could do those things, that I could exhibit the, let's say, perfection that I possess. Okay, and you can see this in other sort of oppressive narratives. You see this in the Black Lives Matter movement where they call for ideas of if the white man wasn't around then black people would be living in perfection utopia. Okay. You see this in fourth wave feminism. If men weren't around then women would live in this blissful utopia. I once uh, saw an interview of a Black Lives Matter leader talking about how black people weren't violent until white people came along and taught them to be violent. And that if white people had never come along, then black people would be living in this uh, passive utopia. The reality of it is, is that we know that capitalist and liberal societies create the least violent societies in the world. And where did liberal and capitalist societies come from? They came from Europe. They came from white people. Okay. Now that's not to say that white people aren't violent. And that's not to say that if 
um, that capitalism came and saved black people and white people saved black people. That's not to say that at all. What that is to say is that the ideas of Europeans drastically reduced violence in societies. Okay. Now the problem with this oppressive narrative is that it produces no motivation to change anything. Because if I'm oppressed, there's nothing that I can do in my life to make my life better because I'll just be held down. That's what an oppression is. And so why would I have any motivation to try to change that? Why would I try to change something that I believe that in the end I will be prevented from implementing? Okay. So I'm going to tell you a story, a, work, a story about work. I had a job as a sales administrator. The job was sales administrator but the reality was was that it was one tenth administrative and nine tenth sales and it was a small office that I worked in it was a small branch for a smaller company that was owned by a national company and I worked across from a woman who was probably the worst human being that I've ever met in my life okay and she was somebody who effectively tyrannised and dictated me. And I spoke to management about this person on several occasions. And upon every occasion, they would say something to the effect of, just say to her, to this member of staff, just say to this member of staff, Calmly but firmly, don't speak to me like that. And I would leave these meetings with management thinking, why are you asking me to do these things? You should just tell her to stop. After all, I'm the victim in all of this. And she's the perpetrator. And I would get really frustrated with management about this I would feel hopeless I would feel demotivated and the reason that I had that mindset not to say anything not to do the things that I should have been doing to try to make the situation better for myself was because I already had this idea that I was oppressed, that I was a victim. And I saw that as just one more example of people oppressing me, of the system oppressing me, let's say. Because I had big ideas about this job. I had real progression pathways and goals ahead of me. And it felt like it was being driven away from me by this tyrannising person. And because I didn't do anything to try to change that myself, 
because of this oppression victimhood narrative that I had in place already, it never got better. It got progressively worse and worse and worse until I found myself without a job one day. Okay. Another story I'm going to tell you is that I wrote a fiction book, I wrote a novel. I wrote, wrote the first draft in 2012 and it wasn't very good. Um, but there was an, there was there were things there. There was something there. Something promising was there, but it was sort of surrounded by a lot of crap and filler and things that wouldn't make a good book. But then there was some real good stuff that needed to be sort of expanded upon and re refined and stuff like that. And so I wrote this book um, whilst my granddad was ill. And um, I would spend the day sort of with him and he would watch sort of daytime TV. And when we weren't really talking about anything, I would pick up my laptop and start, type, start typing. So it was a good route of escapism for me and it kept me active whilst not really a lot was going on. And so I wrote that book and I, after I'd finished it, I sort of set it aside and left it and I left it for four years four years later I'm in a relationship and I'm telling my partner that oh, I've written this book do you want to read it and she sort of went yeah that would be really good so I read the book before I gave it to her and I thought this is not good this is not good at all Obviously, in that time, I'd read more books and I'd gotten a better understanding of what, how to write a book. And so I decided that I was going to rewrite the book. So I started writing it and sort of every time that she would come over, I would give it to her to read and she would read up to where I'd written and then I would start writing again. And I got probably somewhere between halfway and three quarters way finished with the book. And I stopped writing. And I stopped writing because I lost motivation to continue to write. Because I thought that there was no point in finishing the book. Because if I finished the book and sent the book off to agents, publishers, that they would never give me a chance anyway. I'm oppressed after all, and they would never let somebody like me have a book published. And so I didn't finish that draft. Once I got rid of this oppressive narrative, this victimhood narrative, last year I decided that I'm going to write this book, and I'm going to finish it. And I set myself a timetable. I wanted to finish it by this date. And I would dedicate two or three hours every single night to just writing. Just write the book. And then the next day I would read what I'd, what I'd written. Edit it if it needed editing. And then continue on. And I finished that book three weeks before my deadline. 
and I'm now in the process of sending it to agents, trying to get it published. So the problem with the oppressed narrative is that it asks the world to change for you. Okay. Because you live under the assumption that you're perfect and that the world is the only thing that's in the way of you achieving everything that you want to achieve. And so you ask the world to change for it. Okay. Now this idea, this oppressive narrative, this victimhood narrative, nearly led me to my death. Okay. Because if you follow that to its logical conclusion, the world needs to change for you. And the world never changes for you. You fall into a pit of misery and depression. As there is no hope for the future. Because in order for there to be hope for the future, the world must change. But the world will not change. It is selfish to ask the world to change for you. And so you lose hope. And I lost hope. And I had a knife that I used to play with. And we'll go through that in a future episode. But I had a knife that I used to play with. And I had images in my head of um, killing the person at work. And killing myself with this knife and I would sit there every single night playing with this knife it's a folding knife so I'd open it and close it and open it and close it and I'd do that for hours and hours and hours and hours in between sort of chain smoking and not really doing anything productive at all and I wrote a suicide note I wrote a suicide note I made a pact with myself. I decided that I would give myself six years to change my life. And that if I couldn't change my life and find happiness in six years, I would kill myself. And the reason that I, I decided that was because throughout the several depressive episodes that I had there was a six-year period where things actually went pretty well for me and then things happened in between and so I decided that six years if nothing happened in six years to change that I would kill myself I planned that on my 35th birthday that I would have a big party and invite everybody that I knew and then when everybody had gone home, I would go, to, go into my bedroom and kill myself. That's where this kind of oppressive victimhood narrative leads. It leads to either the death of other people or it leads to the death of you. And recently there was the incel who went on a shooting spree in Plymouth and I know that he has gone through the exact same logical conclusion 
to this victimhood narrative that he has decided that he is going to effectively punish the world for his ills because he assumes that he is perfect and that the world needs to change in order for him to be happy. So what happened? What changed? I used to spend my days watching YouTube, YouTube videos. This was after um, I left that job. I would spend my days watching YouTube videos. As I said, I would sit there doing unproductive things, chain smoking um, and playing with this knife. And I came across a video on YouTube of Jordan Peterson. And he was being interviewed by a Channel 4 interviewer called Kathy Newman. And Kathy Newman is a woman who holds a hell of a lot of the beliefs that I used to hold, the, these victim and oppressive beliefs. Okay. And at every challenge that she gave to Jordan Peterson about feminism and Black Lives Matter and communism or socialism, everything, he absolutely destroyed it on a theoretical and practical level. And he spoke about taking responsibility for your life. He spoke about making goals for your life and working hard to achieve them. And he spoke about these things so well that he was speaking to me on an intellectual level, but he was also speaking to my soul as if my soul had been yearning to hear the words that Jordan Peterson spoke and latched onto it such that I could not ignore it such that it destroyed 90% of my personality and my character absolutely destroyed it such that I had to let go of those beliefs and you think like well it's easy to get rid of beliefs that have been um, destroyed but it's really not it's really not it was it was the choice between falling from a tree branch into the darkness or jumping now the problem is is that if you fall you don't know how you're going to land you have no idea you could land on your head you could it could kill you but if you jump at least you know that you'll land on your feet. And so I jumped. And destroyed 90% of my personality willingly. And I had to rebuild that. Bit by bit by bit. And so I did. I started to take responsibility for my life. I, I, I made goals for my life. I decided what I wanted and started to think about 
who I could become to get the things that I want. So what are my residual feelings towards Karl Marx and these oppressive narratives in general? So for a long time I carried around anger towards Karl Marx. Until I did a bit of research on Karl Marx's life. And if you don't know anything about Karl Marx, Karl Marx was the biggest mooch that history has ever seen. Okay, this guy barely held down a job he had one or two jobs he didn't hold them down for very long he lived off of inheritances from his family and gifts from Friedrich Engels who was very rich when he couldn't pay rent he would leave town to avoid paying rent um, his family were poor for the majority of their life he liked for people to believe that he was of higher esteem than he actually was and so he would have parties and he would send his daughter to have like dance lessons and piano lessons and things like that however he never had the money to pay for these things he never had the money to pay his rent and so he would skip town and so I came to understand what kind of person it would take to believe in communism. Okay. I began to understand what kind of person it would take to write the Communist Manifesto. Somebody who does not want to work hard for the rewards that life can give you can give you and so I no longer feel angry towards Marx I feel pity I think he was a sad sad man how do I feel towards current um, victimhood narratives angry angry because there is so much potential in the world. And I see this in people. I see this a lot in people who believe in these narratives. I think you've got so much potential for the world. You're intelligent or you're creative or you're loyal or passionate. And that those abilities and characteristics are being taken away from the world because you believe that you're oppressed and the reality is is that the belief that you're oppressed is what is oppressing you that's what's oppressing you that's what's holding you back nothing else and i think about great artists for example musical artists like eminem for example if he believed that he was oppressed, we would never have gotten the things that he has produced. This is the greatest rapper that the world has ever seen. We would never have gotten it. Think about Picasso or Rembrandt or 
These guys, if they had believed that they were oppressed, we would never have witnessed the works that they produced. Think about Dante, one of the greatest writers that ever existed. What if he believed that he was oppressed? And there are millions upon millions of Dante's, Eminem's, Rembrandt's, Picasso's out there today who we don't don't see their work because they believe that there is no point in putting the effort in because they're oppressed, because they're a victim. I think about people who have the potential to be great leaders, great leaders of people who could lead us away from the terrible things that we're experiencing today. They believe they're oppressed. And so they support ideas like Black Lives Matter, who has a direct value in people who believe that they're oppressed and victims. Okay. So my life since marks. So as I said earlier, I got rid of the victim narr narrative, rebuilt my character, rebuilt my who I am. I'm not the person that I was three years ago. I'm a much better person. There are still issues, obviously. There are still shortcomings. But the shortcomings that I see in myself today are nowhere near as difficult to overcome as, they, as the ones that I saw three years ago. I took responsibility for my life. When things go wrong, it's my fault. When things go right, it's my well-doing. I made goals for my life. And I'm active in pursuing those goals. I have a, a yearly goals. I have monthly goals. I post them up on the wall there. I have five yearly goals. I have 10 year goals and 20 year goals. I know where I want my life to go. And I'm working incredibly hard to achieve those things. And the goals that I set for myself last year, I achieved most of them. And the goals that I've set for myself this year, I feel confident that I can achieve them. Okay. To list a few. To have published my book. Or at least to have gotten a contract with an agent. To have completed my second book. To have started a long-term relationship. Somebody that I can marry and have children with. And these are things that they're achievable and your goals are achievable. Your goals are interesting and doable if you would just leave the idea of oppression and victimhood behind and take responsibility for your life and work towards what you want. Now, I'd like to thank you for watching this episode. Um, I hope you return for the second episode, which is called My Life, My Knife. We're going to talk about 
suicide ideation, how I got to suicide ideation. We've already touched on that a little bit here, but there is uh, more factors to consider. We're going to talk about uh, my previous relationship, my last relationship, which was four years ago now. And we're going to talk about other factors which led me away from suicide. So I'd like to thank you for watching. Like, share and subscribe so that we can help your friends. Follow on Facebook and Instagram at Clean Edge Training. You can email cleanedgetraining at gmail.com. And remember to stay strong and that we will meet again. Smoke it up.